Welcome back once again to Entertainment Geekly, your guide to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and awesome. I'm Darren Franich, and with me, as always, on telephone from his secret island headquarters off the coast of Monaco, Entertainment Weekly's Jeff Jensen. It's a bunker. It's, a, it's, it's a, no, no. It's a hatch. It's a hatch, Darren. Darren it's a hatch. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it, it's a hatch on an island in the middle of the of the Bermuda Triangle. We can we can go into this later, uh, Jeff. Uh, there's, there's a lot of exciting things to talk about today. Uh, next week, of course, is the annual San Diego Comic Con. I'm going to be there. You're going to be there. Many, many uh, other people are going to be there. Uh, it, 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 it should be exciting, but uh, I want to point out to our listeners, probably the, the hottest ticket at Comic-Con this year. Uh, on Friday, uh, in Ballroom 20, from 12.30 to 1.30, there's going to be a massive Firefly 10-year reunion. Uh, you know, luminaries like Joss Whedon, Nathan Fillion, Adam Baldwin, everybody else. But uh, there's also going to be someone else in, in, in attendance there, moderating the panel, none other than Entertainment Weekly's Jeff Jensen. It's 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 it's, um, it's shocking. Uh, can, can you talk a little, a little bit about uh, you know what your what your expectations are for for, for the panel, Jeff? I mean, I, I imagine there may be some fans of Firefly in in the crowd. I think that there there is a modest level of excitement for this. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I mean, if there is a, a place on Earth where you can find thousands and thousands, at least you know six thousand brown coats. Um, it's at Comic Con every year, and unfortunately, I think only four thousand of them will be able to fit into this ballroom. <laughs> um, and um, and I, I'm excited to be there. Um, but what I, as I kind of said in our in our crossover podcast with the TV folk um, earlier today, I, I see my role as um, just making some introductions, asking a couple questions and not getting in the way of uh, what is certain to be this love fest between the audience and, and, and this cast. And, you know, kind of some thoughts that I, I intend to share, which is that, you know, what's really fantastic about the Firefly phenomenon is that, you know, um, the reason why that this is happening is because of the fans, you know, like, um, the fans are, are of course, going to be there for this 10th anniversary reunion with everyone in the cast. But the reason why those cast, that cast is going to be there is because of just the amazing legacy that has been generated by the show and that a legacy that has largely been fueled by this awesome, wonderful fan base. And no, I am not sucking up to them right now, <laughs> but this awesome, wonderful fan base that has sort of kept the memory of this like this, this, this flawed, quirky, failed, wonderful, short-lived TV show alive. You know, it is interesting. I mean, you know, it, it, I'm always really fascinated by what you described as the Firefly phenomenon. I mean, this is a show that. I don't even know that it actually aired all 13 episodes when it was first on Fox. I think that, uh, if I recall correctly, the last episode was only really uh, available when it when it first hit DVD. But it, it, Oddly, yeah, yeah, there was like there was actually a couple episodes that they didn't air, and then they aired the episode that they shot out of order. Um, it's uh, it's there's all these different kinds of like 
Firefly experiences that people have had. Um, there's the DVD experience, there's the on-air experience, there's the way that science airs them. It's very unusual. Yeah, I mean, what do you think it is about this show specifically that has, I mean, there are times at Comic-Con when it almost seems to me like the brown coats, the fans of Firefly, I mean, they are out in as full force as franchises that have lasted for decades, you know? I mean, there's there's an element to them where they're just as vocal and as present as, you know, a Star Trek fan or a Star Wars fan. I mean, like, was it just because there was something so kind of eccentrically wonderful about Firefly that, you know, keeps on inspiring this even, even 10 years later? I mean, I think it first and foremost begins with the larger cult of Joss Whedon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of the people who are Firefly fans um, are just, you know, lifelong members of the Joss Whedon fan club. And I mean that in the best possible sense. And as someone who carries one of those cards in my pocket, um, like, you know, the, the, the show is, you know, essential Joss. It's got his imagination. It has his political concerns. It has his wit. It has um, his flair for ensemble, like, casts and directing them and writing for them. Um, I think that, you know, it's interesting. I, I think that the enduring legacy of the show and the reason why so many people, you know, who discover it now on DVD and really love it and really enjoy it, um, it it's just a testament. I honestly think, to, first and foremost, to the cast, because I do think it's a show that um, I don't think every episode is perfect. I think that it, it's incredibly ambitious, both in terms of its vision and in terms of its tone, this sort of weird mix of science fiction and Western, this weird mix of like drama and comedy, of thoughtful kind of allegory and just like, you know, action adventure, um, these kind of quiet, lost in space kind of episodes. And I mean that in a nice way, in the existential, spacey way. Um, and, 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 and these sort of just like fun time, like, you know, um, uh, uh, episodes where they just in, go on a mission. Um, they pull a heist and that kind of thing. And kind of finding the right tone and the right balance and all that, it kind of wears all of that, you know, the, it's an interesting creative adventure, trying to find the best possible version of Firefly, trying to find a good pacing and tone for it all. And, it, and, and it's all there to watch and marvel and be bugged by and be electrified by and all this kind of stuff. So, so with that said, and I know I'm going on, like the, uh, the, the thing though that has just remained so winning about the show is it's just the cast. I mean, they have such great chemistry. They're so enjoyable. The characters are so finely, richly drawn. Um, it, they, they, just, they just carry you through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll, it'll be uh, it'll be fun to see them all back together. I mean, especially given the fact that you know you, you look at the cast and you realize that for the most part they've all gone on to really interesting things post Firefly. I mean, Nathan Fillion in Castle, Adam Baldwin had Chuck, uh, Mar- Marina Bakarin af- after starring in the fortunately short lived V reboot is now doing great on Homeland. So uh, that should be a lot of fun. Um, we will be uh, recording maybe a few podcasts next week at Comic Con. So, uh, you know, I'll I'll, I'll kind of save talking about that for next week. But, Jeff, uh, right now I, I want to dive into 
uh, something that I think is a, a really sort of interesting topic for geekdom, almost sort of a, a potential to really examine the state of geekery as relates to modern day Hollywood. Uh, the Amazing Spider-Man just hit theaters a couple days before we we're recording this. Uh, did very well at the box office. Uh, to me, this is an interesting new phase of the whole era of superhero movies. It, it sort of feels like we're now hitting a place where comic books hit a long time ago when we are literally kind of going back over old material, bringing this sort of new perspective to it. You know, it, it's it, Sp Amazing Spider-Man is different from Batman Begins, which was a kind of full-scale reboot, totally new storyline, all that stuff. It, it, it feels a lot like they're almost kind of doing over the first Spider-Man. And, you know, on, on one hand, I, I sort of feel like the general critical reaction to the movie has been this is very well made and yet this is the same story we saw just 10 years ago. I mean, do you kind of feel like is, is that is that sort of a legitimate issue or, you know, I mean, to, to a certain extent, like, could we just keep seeing, you know, 10 years from now, a new Iron Man with, you know, a new person taking over from Robert Downey Jr.? I mean, is, is that sort of the vision of superhero movies' future? I mean, yeah, like, I love kind of like the quality that you really kind of zeroed in on. I love that, like, how so many critics, um, like, have to say something like, this movie was totally unnecessary, but I liked it, you know? <laughs> um, um, and it's interesting that they have to take that shot um, that that is either the respectable ground to take or, uh, or, or, or they just genuinely believe it, that movies... You know, apparently should never be remade, um, or at least not be remade this quickly. Um, yeah, I think I think it's very possible. I mean, I think when we're dealing with the top tier brands like Batman or Spider Man, um, you know, I see no reason why these characters and these icons, you know can't be like this generation's or, the, or a new kind of James Bond kind of franchise. You know, no one complains about James Bond movies like, you know, the, the franchise spitting out like, you know, a 20th iteration with a new Bond um, um, in, in the role. I mean, we, we embrace that, right? I mean, it's like, oh, who's the new Bond and what's going to be the new take on this classic archetypal, you know, like pop culture character? I think that, I think that there are a certain set of comic book characters that I personally would hold at bond level cultural status um, that are enduring kind of heroic archetypes and enduring heroes that you can use to say different things about different generations at different times. I mean, I think Batman is a wonderful archetype and symbol and character to keep making movies about and, um, and talk about things like the city and um, and, and justice and fairness and and these kinds of things. I think that um, Spider-Man is a wonderful allegory, American allegory for growing up in adolescence and learning responsibility. Um, with great power comes great responsibility, and that's just like you know, uh, adolescent rite, rite of passage stuff. There, definitely. You know? you, you so I have no I have no problem with seeing Spider-Man, Batman, and Superman. Um, 
done anew every decade uh, as long as they're good movies. And yeah. as long as as long as there seems to be and this is my last point, and I will definitely let you talk, Darren, which is, which is as long as there seems to be a market for it. I mean, I, I do kind of uh, embrace that. You know, like, so I think the Spider-Man movies left money on the table. I mean, we could quibble or criticize or critique the third Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire and, 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 and Kirsten Dunst. I, I wasn't wild about it. It's a mess. It's an interesting mess. But it's a mess. But it was a massive hit. They were going to make a fourth one. There was no waning in terms of the popularity or appeal of that. Um, Sony is making a new one. They're just kind of like starting over with a different perspective for a new generation, and um, cool. Jeff, you, you you just said so many points, and for each of those points, I have at least five points in response. But uh, I want to <laughs> I want to zero in on uh, the last thing that you said about Spider Man Three. Um, now, uh, I actually did see uh, Amazing Spider-Man, and uh, you know what what struck me about it was that, you know, it really was to me trying to tell a story that has been told before, and that's certainly fine. I mean, you know, th- there are people who would point out that you know there's only seven stories in the entire history of fiction and all that stuff. But what what struck me about it is that it didn't seem to necessarily have anything new to say about its story. You know, I mean, like the, you know, the the entire Spider-Man origin story, maybe, you know, the great sort of comic book origin, this whole notion of, you know, this this nerd who then becomes, you know, a total badass and then sort of misuses that badassery, winds up getting someone he loves killed and then is sort of cursed with the knowledge of that forever after. I, I think there's there's something so appealing and so mythic about that that it's sort of impossible to screw that up, you know? Um, but uh, I, I, after watching Amazing Spider-Man and, and feeling very kind of underwhelmed by it, uh, that night um, FX was airing Spider-Man 3, so I, I happened to watch that. And Spider-Man 3 is, you, you nailed it, a complete mess of a movie. But watching it, I, I realized that I, I think that it's almost kind of become the go-to example in the last few years of how not to do a superhero movie, how not to end a trilogy. You know, you sort of hear people talk about what a disappointment it was. But that's a movie that I think actually does something very interesting with the Spider-Man myth. You know, uh, it, it's a movie about Spider-Man sort of becoming a, a uh, he's, he's beloved, you know, like right from the start, he's living in this New York City where everyone loves him. You know, he sort of feels like he's on top of the world. The whole kind of strange use of the Venom costume in that movie is sort of intended to almost kind of push Peter Parker into being, um, you know, into, into feeling like more of a badass than he usually allows himself to feel. And I, to me, that's such an interesting idea that it sort of, it sort of makes Spider-Man 3 feel like more of a real movie to me. Whereas Amazing Spider-Man, you know, for, for, for all the kind of technical proficiency that the movie brings to the, the, the story, I, it felt very, very empty. And I, I sort of wonder if that's because, you know, it, it's, it's absolutely all well and good to retell a story, but I wonder if if you are the person who's retelling it, is there more pressure put on you to bring a new perspective to it? You know, I, 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 I sort of wonder if, you know, the, 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 the critique about this being unnecessary is really more a critique of it not really trying anything new, perhaps. 
Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I have a difficulty in having not seen The Amazing Spider-Man yet. Um, I, I, I can't completely weigh in on this. At the same time, I do kind of think, oh, I, I wonder if there is an apples and oranges kind of like um, fallacy here in, in, in comparing Spider-Man 3 to The Amazing Spider-Man because the Spider because having just rewatched Spider-Man 3 for our recent DVD lead, you know, Spider-Man 3 is the end of an ongoing conversation about Spider-Man and specifically Peter Parker's relationship to, you know, the two the two people he really wants to be most in the world, which is either, you know, this sort of like personally fulfilled hero, i.e. Spider-Man, or um, Mary Jane's one true love. Um, uh, being a boyfriend or just being a boy. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and, and, and so this, this sort of conflict is sort of building and developing throughout all three films and takes a really interesting turn in Spider-Man 3 when you have a complete role reversal of Spider-Man 2 where Mary Jane is sort of down and out and renegotiating what she, who she wants to be in life. And Spidey seems to be, Peter Parker seems to be, you know, sensationally fulfilled, you know, the, the people love him, and he's, he's really, like, enjoying that. Um, Spider-Man is now a culturally affirmed hero, um, but the movie kind of puts him in this crisis, which is, like, what's ultimately more important to him, which is sort of being loved and being affirmed and being validated by both the culture and by this girl that loves him, or... Is, is, is sort of being a, 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 a good guy and a great boyfriend to, um, um, to, to Mary Jane more important. Is it more important to be loved or to, to love, you know, which is, I think is the ultimate point of Spider-Man 3. And my problem with Spider-Man 3, um, which is a slight, uh, maybe unfair to m make this a problem, which is that I think it brings Peter to a, uh, a, a point that, that the, the movie just can't go any further. I mean, the, the movie kind of brings Peter to a place where he clearly has to choose between being Spider-Man or, or, or being Mary Jane's husband. There's, there, there can be probably no middle ground here, you know? Um, it, it seems to me that that's the way the conversation was going in that, in that movie. And, they they don't answer it. You know, Spider-Man Three has this kind of like wonderfully melancholy, bittersweet end, where Mary Jane and Peter are just sort of dancing together, and you kind of don't know where they go from here. Now, maybe Sam Raimi had an answer to that because he was going to make Spider-Man Four. So now maybe we really don't know how he would have resolved that. But I kind of think that you know the two things that ultimately doomed that franchise from a creative perspective was that it locked into a narrative that ultimately kind of like like gave us Spider-Man 3, which is the whole sort of like Peter, you know, James Franco versus Tobey Maguire thing, you know? Mm -hmm. From the very beginning, the first Spider-Man movie, they kind of set up this whole idea of like, Harry Osborn is going to find out what Peter did, um, is going to, you know, and, and, and he's kind of slowly going mad and he wants vengeance for his father against Spider-Man. Um, and I think that even by Spider-Man 2, the audience realizes this storyline is pretty weak. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it seems that from the very beginning in Spider-Man, the, the, the filmmakers thought that this would actually be a, a storyline that would carry a lot of weight and culminate pretty spectacularly in the third film, you know, Tobey Maguire versus James Franco. 
And I think that by the time they got to that third film, it was clear that no one cares. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, um, it's just not that, not as interesting as they thought it could be. So I think that they had to overload it with things like Sandman and Venom and two different love triangles and Gwen Stacy. Gwen Stacy, why is she in this movie? Like, you know, like, um, and, uh, and then I think they kind of dead end themselves with the best thing about all three movies, which is the Tobey Maguire, Christian Dunst chemistry and the Peter, Mary Jane relationship. But ultimately it leads to this third film where the conflict isn't that interesting on a, on a superhero level and the, the romantic conflict leads to a place where I, I don't know where that franchise goes from there, and you know, so. You, you know, it, it is funny, you know, uh, one thing that you're tapping into, uh, earlier on you were sort of comparing these franchises to James Bond. I mean, it's almost funny when you realize that it took so long for Hollywood to finally start making a franchise along the lines of James Bond that could feasibly go on and on, that could sort of like replace its lead actors. One thing I, I think is interesting about the Bond franchise, just to compare it to, say, Spider-Man, is that with with one exception, which I'll get to in a second, James Bond has never been a saga. You know, it's it, it's not really the story of a character. It's this sort of story of this real, uh, you know, ar uh, archetypal hero. And each movie, if anything, is really more about the villains he's facing off against or the sort of environment that he's, you know, wading into to do his super spying, which is sort of part of the appeal of the franchise is that each movie, you know, you know it's going to be a little bit different. You know it may sort of tap into the spirit of the times. You know, it, Pierce Brosnan faces off against a Rupert Murdoch-esque media mogul. That, that's a lot different from when Sean Connery was fighting Russian villains back in the Soviet Union days. I, I sort of wonder if... To a certain extent, a franchise like Spider-Man was dooming itself by locking itself into this notion of we need to tell the, the, the great saga of Spider-Man's life. And I say that because you realize that Spider-Man has so many fantastic villains that a movie could just be, you know, Spider-Man is swinging around one day, runs into Dr. Octopus or Electro or Sandman, and then it becomes about their face-off. Whereas, yeah, Spider-Man 3, you sort of have we'll do a little bit of that, and we'll also do a little bit of Venom, and we'll do a little bit of, you know, the conclusion of the Green Goblin saga, and it just, it becomes a little bit too much. Uh, the, the, other, the other thing about, uh, about Spider-Man 3 that, you know, I, I sort of think, you know, as, as I'm, you know, it's, it's, as I'm saying that it's better than I remember, boy, there are just a lot of very awkward sequences in that movie <laughs> that it, it almost seems like Sam Raimi was aggressively despising Spider-Man man by that point i mean uh just i every time i get back around to that moment when james franco wakes up and has amnesia and has magically forgotten everything about the last oh two my movies God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean when that happens in the movie i mean uh, it, it, it's a yeah it, it really it, it, it's a movie that kind of like you're thinking a lot about the mechanics of the movie and you're you're realize you know you're 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 very acutely aware of uh, they're giving him amnesia because otherwise this movie peaks too early. <laughs> you know, like like we we can't have the climax of the movie now. Yeah, I mean, here at the twenty minute mark. 
um, or 15 minute mark. I mean, the first battle between, you know, Green Goblin and Spider-Man is like, what, like, like 15 minutes. And yes. it's a weirdly paced movie. It's, 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 it's very oddly paced. I, I was trying to remember, I mean, is there any good use of amnesia in any movie ever? Like, like besides something where, you know, it's, it's very key to the plot line, like, like say Memento. I mean, it just seems like, you know, I, I always thought this back in the days when I went, when I was recapping Heroes, which regularly used amnesia as a way to sort of dodge out of, of a plot line. It almost seems like in the in all writers' rooms in Hollywood, there's this sort of you know I- emergency uh, you know button you press when suddenly it's like amnesia for everyone. <laughs> well, I think there's an amnesia story that like you know gets told many many different ways, many different times over. But I think it's actually interesting, and I, and, I, and I don't think that there can just be one way to um, do it. But like the whole, I, I am very intrigued by the whole I, whole amnesia story in which um, you were a jerk, people hated you, and you didn't care. You were selfish and self-serving, blah blah blah. Get knocked over the head. <laughs> you now completely forget who you are, and you build this completely different personality. This mm-hmm. whole persona, um, the whole regarding Henry thing, or um, um, you know, I, I think that uh, wasn't the majestic kind of hinged on this too. I forget. But yes, like, yes, the um, Frank Frank Darabont's forgotten my, non-classic, of, the majestic. Yeah, the jerk who forgets he's a jerk and becomes a good idea, and then what does he do when he gets his memory back? Um, and when he now has a, a choice between being the two different people, you know, he now has two different personalities to choose from. Does he go back to being the guy that he always was, um, was, was before, you know, and, and I, I've always kind of liked that storyline. You know, Fringe did that in its own unique way this past season with the whole, the reboot thing, where essentially it's, it's essentially an elaborate amnesia storyline where everyone forgets who they are and then they've developed these whole slightly skewed new personalities. And then we have in the Anatorp character, um, Olivia Dunham, she starts to remember who she is or who she used to be in the other timeline. And now she has a choice to make. Does she want to have this old timeline self kind of like completely displace this new version of herself? Or does she want to some, find some way to fight it and, and, and retain her new timeline self? And I thought that was a really interesting gloss on this video. It is it, it, it is interesting. I want to I want to uh, cut us off before we get too far into this because I know I know we'll wind up spending half an hour talking about the science fiction classic The Vow, starring Rachel McAdams and Channing Tatum. But uh, what I what I <laughs> oh want to ask. Oh my god! <laughs> that I, was horrible. That was hideous. <laughs> Can we talk about that for half an hour? Oh, my wife maybe watched that. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I scored some points, but that was horrible. <laughs> uh, people have been scoring points right and left, taking their wives and girlfriends to see Channing Tatum movies this this year. I, th- I think, um, but it's all it, it's all going to pay off in March when GI Joe Retaliation comes out. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, now, now, uh, uh, Jeff, I, I wanted to ask you though. So, um, something that really interested me most when I came out of Amazing Spider-Man was, uh, you know, just the fact that. 
I sort of tend to forget that, you know, the first Spider-Man movie was really sort of the the watershed moment that kick-started the whole superhero boom. I mean, you know, Blade and X-Men had come out before that film, but Spider-Man, to me, really cemented almost, you know, almost similar to what Stagecoach did for the Western. It really sort of cemented the whole kind of structure and a lot of the key themes that came to be so important to superhero cinema. In re-watching the, the, the original trilogy, how did it hold up for you? I mean, you know, have the movies aged well? Like, has, has, has Spider-Man 2, would you still place that in, you know, right near the, the top of your list of all-time superhero movies? Oh, yeah, I do. I mean, I think a lot of my original opinions of how I would how I would approach the original Spider-Man trilogy is actually to not watch them as a trilogy. Um, I think that, you know, Spider-Man 2 works so wonderfully on its own. Um, and it is, it's just a great movie. And what's great about it is that, you know, you, what, what I really recalled watching it again recently. And I remember even back when I first saw it was how little Spider-Man is actually in it, how little Dr. Octopus is actually in it, how much it's really just this sort of like drama about Peter Parker and, um, and, and managing all of these, you know, different relationships in his life and, and just really kind of struggling through his college years and, um, uh, and, and, and the kind of guy he wants to be, um, with, you know, with, with Mary Jane and all that. I mean, it's a really wonderful, well-written, very emotional movie. And I, I really appreciate it. I think that all three films, you know, Ra- Rainey brought the right style and approach. To this. I'm not saying them that you know um, the new movie doesn't have the right style or tone. I, I, I like having not seen it, but I I'm a big fan of that filmmaker. But like Rainey, kind of is like his sort of like heightened poppy kind of um, uh, storytelling voice is it's just very classical in a way, and it lends a sort of timeless quality to especially the first two movies. And I think the first hour of of Spider-Man, the first one, is just super fun. I think that they nail the comic book origin really well. And Tobey Maguire is fantastic. Mm-hmm. I think that you know, like I think that Tobey and, and Kristen and those movies are just they do they do a, a, a really good job. So uh, I had I've always had mixed feelings about the first Spider-Man movie. I thought they got the origin story right. I thought they got Peter and Mary Jane right. I hated the Green Goblin of it all. Um, <laughs> so I mean, it's still, just, still, I mean, still, maybe the worst supervillain outfit in the history of superheroes on screen is uh, the, the 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 Green Goblin sort of green Power Ranger uh, look in that. Oh movie. my gosh! Oh yeah, the movie almost goes off the rails in that one point where he like you know abducts Green Goblin, abducts Spider Man, and then it, it's and and, and it credit Raimi for an interesting like visual approach to the sequence in the movie because I think he recognized this is the only way maybe the audience can roll with this moment. He abducts Spider-Man and takes him to a remote location and it's kind of dark and it's kind of the ruins of some kind of like building or something like that. And they have this conversation with their masks on and it literally looks like the the, the, the biggest budget like Mighty Morphin Power Rangers episode <laughs> ever done. But it's like this conversation between them with their masks on and it's ridiculous and like, you know, Goblin's 
helmet is like wobbling around on Willem Dafoe's head, and I'm sitting there looking at Spider-Man, going, "Is Tobey Maguire really underneath that?" <laughs> and, and, and 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 the thing that kills me about this scene is that never once I think does Green Goblin ever think to take Spider-Man's mask off. Which, which, if I was a supervillain, that's what I would do. That that does seem like the first move, yeah. Right, but to Raimi stages it in this sort of like dream-like way, and it kind of like is 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 smart on its. Uh, I mean, to the point where it's like, is this really happening? Mm-hmm. Like. You know, is it you know is it some kind of dream way of sort of like uh, like expressing what each of these characters feel and and and, stay their confl- and kind of expressing their conflict? But like, it, you know, is it really happening? A smart move. Obviously, it is happening in a movie, but like he, he manages to make it work. But. Well, and it's interesting too. You know, uh, what you were saying about um, to 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 paraphrase you for a second, Jeff, the the Sam Raimi of it all. Um, I, I in in my memory. Because you know, I I obviously like a lot of you know young nerds. I I grew up loving the whole Evil Dead trilogy, and in, in my memory, the Spider-Man movies felt a little bit like Sam Raimi, sort of towing the line more stylistically. You know, like sort of uh, creating this you know believable and you know even sort of like more straightforward style that all superhero movies have sort of since followed through on. Um, in rewatching Spider-Man Three and in, in sort of you know taking a look back to uh, the, the first two movies, I, I really am struck by the level of I, I, it feels more tonally interesting than a lot of other superhero movies have recently. You know, I, I sort of feel like, especially with the rise of Marvel Studios, we've sort of had almost this kind of TVification of the style of these movies, where they're just a little bit less, um, for lack of a better word, over the top. And there's something about the way that Sam Raimi really takes to a lot of the affectations of the Spider-Man myth that feels to me almost more like the Dick Tracy movie, you know? I mean, you sort of have this this bizarre, almost wonderful fantasy land vision of New York City where every, you know, there's the kind of fast-talking His Girl Friday stuff in all the Daily Bugle scenes, and um, you know, like, uh, Peter Parker lives in what looks like this sort of awful, like, tenement house where, you know, the, the door doesn't close properly, and uh, you know, I, I and, and even, uh, you know, uh, maybe one of the things I enjoy most about Spider-Man 3, he does all these musical sequences, and they're, you know, uh, you know, Kirsten Dunst is singing on Broadway, and it it feels to me a little bit like, without even maybe realizing it at the time, Sam Raimi really did sort of put his stamp on Spider-Man in, in a way that I, I I think has aged very well. I mean, by comparison, there's there's an aspect to the new movie where I sort of feel like it's almost trying too hard for quote unquote realism that it sort of misses out on a lot of the a lot of the charm of, of, of what Sam Raimi did with it. I mean, God, that that first scene in Spider-Man Two when he's delivering the pizza, that's just I mean, pure you know, one of the one of the sort of great moments in the comic book movies, I think. Oh, and and, and and how that culminates in this wonderful moment where, you know, he um inexplicably, you know, like after he after Peter chooses to basically throw off the bike and get in the Spider-Man costume and swing through the city to deliver the pizzas. And then somehow he winds up in a, in a janitorial closet without a window <laughs> or, or whatever. But then like the, the, the comedy of like Peter Parker kind of stumbling out of the janitorial closet and then like engaging in this long protracted single take fight with all of these mop handles and brooms coming <laughs> out and stuff back in. I mean, just to kind of like uh, go to your point, 
I would actually go back and rewatch Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2, and I think that you'll see a lot more of Sam Raimi circa Evil Dead, Sam Raimi sort of the impish kind of like, you know, uh, cartoony, the dark man kind of Sam Raimi mm-hmm. in the first and, and, and second films. The, the first one, like watching it again, I was surprised by how much subtextual, like sexual humor is in the movie, mm-hmm. like from Mary Ooh. Jane eyeballing kind of like Peter Parker's camera swung low around his belt, belting like a nice camera <laughs> and like, you know, like or you know, shooting the webs in his, in the privacy of his room. I mean, what's this about? You know, like <laughs> you know, like hair growing off his palms and climbing the walls. Mm-hmm. Like you know, it's all through the movie. Um, but where he finds the perfect blend of, I think, big studio like filmmaking and personal Sam Raimi kind of affectation is in the second film. Go watch that movie because it has so much fun with. Um, the violence, there's this recurring motif throughout the movie of, 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 um, of women screaming, like, you know, the, the, the scream queen kind of style, like where there's this really scary sequence and early in the film when after Octavius has the accident and goes to the emergency room and the, and, and the, and the arms kind of come to life and take over Octavius's brain and starts killing all the doctors and nurses in the emergency room. And the way that Raimi stages it, it's really scary and it's really kind of, um, intense but it's also kind of completely campy too with the nurses kind of like these super close-ups of the nurses just screaming as their lungs <laughs> out and the shadow of like the, the, the octopus arms like holding like these giant scalpels and like slashing people and dragging people in the shadows and if i recall but, correctly th- there is a chainsaw in that hospital scene right I believe so yes they have a chainsaw <laughs> Uh, to like, they're gonna hack off these arms. And so, like, you know, it's it, there's more of Raimi in 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 all of the movies. I think that it's funny because when I first saw the first Spider-Man, I, I don't disagree with your initial take on the first. I wanted more Raimi and less kind of like studio machine superhero movie. But now kind of watching them again, I see a lot more of him in there. Maybe by comparison to other studio movies, like like you're saying, making the comparison to Marvel, the, the sort of Marvel Studios machine and this like how it tends to homogenize like, you know, the directors that come through, whether it's Joss Whedon or Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, exactly, and 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 you know, again, there's there's nothing wrong to me with what Marvel is doing on principle. I mean, uh, you know, they they've sort of created a house style in a way that uh, you know, we, it, it's rare to see that in a in a studio, and and I I think it, it's it's interesting. But I, I think that as as a moviegoer, I always kind of enjoy movies that feel stamped with a real kind of personal vision. And yeah, I, I think that yeah. I think I think Raimi did that. If anything, maybe the problem with Spider-Man Three is that there's too much personal vision. But I'll. I'll I'll tell you, man, on rewatching it, I loved that scene where, for no reason at all, Peter Parker does a whole little, like, jazz song and dance number. I mean, uh, maybe maybe just because that seems uh, that seems like something that, like, any executive would instantly be like, why is this happening? Don't do this. But there, there's something really kind of appealing about that. Uh, whereas, when I first saw it in theaters, I thought that was the end of my life. Uh, yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't blame... Spider-Man 3, it's so hard to know, I think. I, I really do, kind of based on everything that I've learned about movie making over the past, doing this job. It's hard to know how 
things like Spider-Man 3 get made. I don't <laughs> think that, like, how it became what it became, I don't think we can ever cleanly lay it on the feet of, like, at the feet of Raimi or the screenwriter or whatever. I, I, I get the sense of a movie that kind of, like, felt obligated to be bigger and better than the previous two movies. And what, what happens when we have these trilogies oftentimes is that you, you you see sort of like the second film follow up a successful first film by a real expansion of scale and scope. And so where do you go with the third film? Um, it would be the bold filmmaker who said, let's go smaller mm -hmm. with the third film. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It, it, it's but, actually, um, you know, I remember uh, right after Avengers came out, Joss Whedon was quoted saying exactly that, that he was really hoping, you know, just, just in, purely theoretically, if, if he were to make the sequel, he'd love to go a little bit smaller. Uh, probably talked his way out of a job when he, uh, when, when he said that, <laughs> I, I, I would imagine. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I, oh, sorry. But, but before we wrap up, because I think we're about going along, let's talk about the subject that I think we really need to talk about, about the amazing Spider-Man. And I think you could, um, you could, you could speak to it very clearly having seen it, which is, you know, before we began this podcast, you and I were just talking about how uh, the news of the day, which a lot of people are talking about, is that how there was a lot of, um, ideas and elements that were in the, the trailers for The Amazing Spider-Man that actually did not make um, the, the Spider-Man movie, and people are talking about this, so definitely spoiler alert, because I want to actually have a very explicit conversation about this, Darren, but like, so spoiler alert for anyone who's not seen Spider-Man, maybe this is the part where you tune out, but yes. you talked to us a little bit about what, what did we see in the trailers that we didn't actually get in, in, in The Amazing Spider-Man? Well, it, it's interesting that you, you know, Jeff, it, it, it almost seems like the entire concept of this movie that we'd been sold almost seems to have been left on the editing room floor. In the trailers, um, you know, there were a few key lines that I, I, I think people kind of looked into. There was this sort of notion in uh, the advertising that this was the untold story of Spider-Man. And there was even, um, you know, this whole kind of, there was a shot of the lizard of, of, of Kurt Connors in sort of mid-transformation saying something to the effect of, you know, Peter, do you even know what you are? Which, you know, to me sort of seems like a strong implication backed up with certain storylines that have appeared in the comic books that the origin story that we have sort of come to know, this notion that he was just an average kid who was in the right place at the right time, was inaccurate. That, that, that this movie was somehow going to be about how his father maybe was experimenting on him. You know, there was, there was a lot in the movie about, you know, Peter's scientist father and his ties to Norman Osborn and all this stuff that wound up being completely not in the movie uh, at all. Um, the only real... Uh, sort of hint at it was in the kind of, you know, mid-credits teaser for the next movie, a, a scene that itself was weirdly enough in the trailer, where you had this man totally covered in shadows, unclear who it was, clearly some villain that we'll be seeing further down the line, asking the lizard, did you tell Peter the truth about his father? It, it, it feels like, you know, it, it, it's hard to know what exactly happened there. It feels like the movie maybe 
wanted to have sort of a Batman Begins-y twist. You know, Batman Begins, of course, you know, uh, the, the, there's the moment in that movie when you discover that Ra's al Ghul was actually behind the murder of Bruce's parents. And it's a really sort of a, a moment that really makes you go back and rethink everything you know about the, the, the origin of Batman. It seems like they wanted to do that, but then sort of wimped out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I'd, I'd love to know what exactly the reason was for that. I mean, on one hand, you know, the movie itself, I, I think it's about two hours and 15 minutes, so it may have just purely been a sort of time thing, but it, it, it does sort of make, it, it sort of adds to the uh, uh, pure, ir, uh, unnecessary irrelevance of Amazing Spider-Man, I think, that it seems like they wanted to do something new with the origin story and then did not. That being said, I, I'm sure it'll be explored in future movies, but it, it is it is strange. I'm hard-pressed to remember something like this happening, where something that seemed so central to a movie's entire uh, you know concept wound up just edited out in the <laughs> in the process of making it. Yeah. Uh, some conspiracy theories slash spe- rank speculations that like that se- that come to mind, kind of like hearing about all of this, which is that it it, it, it you know I think the the easiest kind of like assumption to be made that the, the safest one, most benign is yeah they they wanted to like just bring down the running time, so they just kind of felt like. We're confident in our movie. It's going to be big. There will be a sequel. Let's just save all this stuff for the sequel. So that just seems to make a lot of sense. But there also could be a scenario whereby whatever the the, the creative idea behind whatever it is that is is the is, is Peter's big secret about his past, maybe it's being rethought, mm-hmm. um, and maybe the the whether that ends up being the real scope of the, the focus of the second movie or what maybe it's being rethought. I thought it was interesting that earlier this year they they announced that, you know, Alex Kurtzman and Bob Orsi, the superstar writing team, like have been hired to be like writers and I believe executive producers of of, of the sequel. And so I love that. Like, like, don't you just kind of like to picture Orsi and Kaufman just like rolling around Hollywood and like you know some like you know like 1965 like matching red Cadillacs just going from studio to studio like yeah like Star Trek Two bam Amazing Spider Man Two bam like what a I, I, I feel like every franchise movie that comes down the line has been written by them at some point right but it just makes me wonder if what happened there was they came aboard pretty early on while the film was clearly still being finished and and started having creative conversation about conversations about where to go from here and maybe they all as a team over there kind of decided hey let's kind of like let's rethink this like not in the sense of like we're not going to do it but let's think how we want to do it um and and there could be that and here's the other thing that kind of makes me kind of like an idea that I just want to throw out there on the table, which is like, um, did Prometheus set a precedent here in this, in this summer for, you know, we've talked about Prometheus in this podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, we have a lot of admiration for it, but my take on Prometheus is sort of being a franchise starter. 
not a pure prequel that like hooks up cleanly to Alien, but as such, it leaves a lot of questions unanswered. And we saw that there was a contingent of the audience that was really frustrated by that. They went to this movie and they didn't want all those dangling plot lines to be resolved in a sequel that may or may not happen. They wanted their answers in this movie. And so it made me wonder if there was some hedging or second guessing when it comes to The Amazing Spider-Man about, you know, we are clearly just letting, like, putting in all these dangling plot lines and this, we're, we're just asking questions that were, are not going to be answered and do we run the risk of pissing people off mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. they seem to be really pissed off about it. Um, the Prometheus fans were at least. So I'm wondering if it was all a game move based on what they're seeing in the geek culture right now. Mm -hmm. it, it, it'll be, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, how that kind of progresses in, in the sequels. Now, uh, Jeff, just to, just to wrap up here, you know, uh, I, I sort of made reference to that credit sequence tease. There's a, there's a lot of theories about who the villain of the next movie might be. I have my theories, you have your theories. Everyone has theories. Theories are fun to have. But uh, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, to me, Spider-Man has maybe the best rogues gallery in comics. Certainly, it's him and Batman sort of in competition. I mean, uh, you know, these these four Spider-Man movies that we've seen so far are really just kind of scratching the surface. Uh, if, if you could choose a villain or a couple of villains to see in the next Spider-Man movie, who would... Who would you want? Would you want to see kind of a, a reimagined version of a character we've already seen in these movies, or you know, would would you go for some for some uh, you know deep cuts from Spider-Man's past? Wow, um, that's a really great question. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, let's let, let's just kind of admire your question. <laughs> it was a fantastic question. <laughs> um, like I love Spider-Man's Rogues Gallery. It's a really great Rogues Gallery. Um, I think though that you know one of the things that Spider-Man suffers from, I think, is it's interesting that you would compare Spider-Man's Rogues Gallery to Batman's Rogues Gallery because it's it. I understand what you're saying, but if you were to like, who's Batman's number one villain? Um, the Joker. The Joker, absolutely. What's who's Spider-Man's number one villain? It's like various Green Goblins. <laughs> various Green Goblins. Now, Joker versus Green Goblin. Who wins? I mean, that's that's not even a real. Uh, it, it's it's definitely definitely Joker. I think in in pretty much every respect, except for who has more money and who has worse hair. Um, that, that's the unique problem with this comparison, right? Which is that Batman's rogue Spider Man does have an amazing gallery of villains, and they're all really really awesome. But Spider-Man's best villain is so far away from Batman's number one villain, and I would dare say, who's Batman's number two villain? Uh, probably Two-Face. Two-Face, like uh, like uh, uh, Spider-Man's number two villain. The um, uh, number two villain, uh, maybe Craven the Hunter. <laughs> Craven or Doc Ock, probably. So like um, Venom, so, maybe. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I, I don't know. Craven Doc Ock versus Two Face, Riddler, Catwoman, Penguin. I mean, man, like, you know, you, you realize how well stocked that Batman bench is. So this is, so let's, let, let's, we just went down like a subset of geek holes there. Um, <laughs> That's actually the name of Jeff Jensen's upcoming memoir, listeners A Subset of, 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 of Geek Holes. Uh, look, look for it. <laughs> 
look for it on the bookshelves this this fall. <laughs> but to answer your question, I think there are villains that Spider-Man has great comic book villains, but I don't know if he has great movie villains. And I don't think he has a lot of them. Like I love the Shocker, but do we want to watch a whole ep- a whole whole movie of that guy in that costume? Mm-hmm. He's obscured. Um, Electro. Um, I think Electro is a great villain. Um, you know, I think like watching Spider-Man two recently and watching Doctor Octopus made uh, again made me realize that how creepy cool I always thought Doctor Octopus was as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, but at the same time, I don't know if I want to see this Spider-Man movie like go and and, and revisit old villains. Um, given what we know about the Gwen Stacy storyline from the comics, if I have any desire to emulate that. I gotta think at some point we're cruising toward a reinvention of the Green Goblin. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would like to see that character reinvented and done well. I think that's a great story, marketable story for this new franchise. If it's in the second or third film, um, well, and, and you know, like Spider-Man villains, I've always had a soft spot for for are Mysterio and Chameleon. And, wait, wait, and who's, Craven. And Craven. Oh, oh, yeah, Craven. Well, and it, it's funny, too, because, you know, uh, just to briefly go back into that, that geek hole that we were uh, um, mining a second ago, the, the thing about all Batman's villains is, you know, they're, they're very unified in the sense that, you know, they, they're they all kind of, like, psychologically tweaked. They're, they're, they're all kind of, in their own way, maybe mirror visions of Batman. You don't get that right. with all of Spider-Man's villains, but the best ones, like Green Goblin and like Dr. Octopus, you know, they, like Spider-Man, are somehow changed by science, but for them it goes in the other direction. But I, I like that you name-checked Craven because he's someone who just is is completely almost sort of cartoonish. I mean, I, I I forget exactly what his backstory is, but he's sort of this like you know this guy you know this this wealthy you know most dangerous game dude who wants to hunt you know the you know he's he he's hunting Spider-Man the same way that you know Teddy Roosevelt used to hunt uh, you know lions. So I I think that would be interesting. I I I can't imagine any filmmaker who could figure out what to do with Craven in in, in a modern movie. Um, you know, but, that, that, but I think you could. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think you could. I mean, I think that you would need to take the big game, you know, white hunter act, like identity away from Craven. But Craven as sort of like this, you know, uh, kind of like... Um, like I want the superhero version of Anton Chigurh, you know, this mm-hmm. sort of like unstoppable killing machine that like I could see him. I mean, Craven could be reinvented as Spider-Man's Joker, mm-hmm. like the um, Dark Knight, you know, kind of era, which is, you know, the, the sort of like um, really kind of like over the top mo- force of malevolence who comes to New York for the explicit purpose of the challenge of killing Spider-Man and making a whole freaking mess of New York City in the process and kind of like just producing chaos on that level. Mm-hmm. Like, um, but you are correct. I mean, in the sense of like, uh, it would require a reinterpretation of that character. Let me let me offer you a a, a counteroffer, Jeff. Um, this is uh, my my personal preference for a villain that I I would like to see in a future Spider-Man movie. A, a villain who maybe has an even worse. Uh, trajectory uh, than Craven, just as far as like trying to figure out how to reinvent him. But uh, back in, I think it was the early 80s, um, a writer named Roger Stern 
uh, I think that he, he was tasked with bringing back the Green Goblin, didn't want to do that, so he invented a sort of new but not actually new character named the Hobgoblin. And the Hobgoblin is basically just the Green Goblin with less insanity. He's someone who went through the same sort of science experimentation as Norman Osborn, um, and then you know took the outfit and turned it orange, and voila, new, new villain. But what I liked about the original Hobgoblin story is that it was actually kind of a mystery. There was this whole sense of, you know, who is the Hobgoblin? It could be anybody. It could be someone very close to Peter Parker. It could be, you know, one of his co-workers. It, 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 it to me, seems like the the opportunity to do that would be a really distinctive thing, you know? I mean, like, uh, I, I, I'm trying to remember the last time that there was a legitimate sort of mystery plot line in a superhero movie that really sort of, like, had you guessing. And I, I, I'd love if they could figure out some way to do that. That being said, Hobgoblin has a whole host of issues, not least of which is how do you do him and not just do Green Goblin first. But I think, I think that would be my personal uh, pick. If I were, I way, sorry, go ahead. No, I was gonna say I, I I like what you're pitching. I think the only thing that like the, the best part of what I like about what you're pitching though is the is the mystery of it all. Who is the hobgoblin? And to do that, you need a nice field of suspects. So I don't think you can do that story until you expand the field of, of, of suspects, mm-hmm. um, which like for so for example, maybe that's the function of the second film because. You and I have been exchanging some emails about the secret scene, quote unquote, in The Amazing Spider-Man. And there's been some speculation that the producers involved in The Amazing Spider-Man are fond of the Sinister Six. Um, and so that maybe, you know, so how about this pitch for you, Darren? Like the second film is basically a collection of a league of villains um, maybe kind of like lower tier on the Spider-Man like spectrum. You get people like Vulture or Electro or Shocker, and you cast them with some really kind of like recognizable actors. And then the third film ends up being kind of like the death of Gwen Stacy storyline with the Hobgoblin instead of the Green Goblin. But the question is, who's behind the mask? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like it, Jeff. I think that you and I could be the new Roberto Orsi and Alex Kurtzman. <laughs> I, I think uh, let's we'll we'll call up Sony. We have you know we have some we have some good ideas for this saga. Um, all right, I uh, I want to wrap. I, I, I we, we have to wrap things up. Unfortunately, I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about with Spider-Man uh, once once you've seen it. But uh, I, I just want to tell you know do a quick shout out to our listeners here and say that Jeff and I will be at Comic Con next week. We'll be around. We'll be there in person. If you recognize us or if you overhear us talking, uh, feel free to come and say hi. Or at, at least to me, Jeff will be there inside of the the bubble that uh, protects him from the outside world. So uh, you, may, you may have to just uh, w- w- wave to him. Yes. Um, just don't make eye contact with me. Stay out of my eyeline. That's in my contract. <laughs> with my contract with the world. And, um, and uh, no, please uh, come and say hi. Should be fun. Should be fun. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, as always, I'm Darren Franich. I'm Jeff Jensen. See you next week. 